2: In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well my podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter if you find yourself affected by my subject matter please contact lifeline or any other support service or person that you feel comfortable with my guests provide their recollection of an event or incident sharing their thoughts and their emotions but it's theirs and not everyone will agree with them i understand that and i hope you do too thank you
1: be honest with you, Narelle. Until this book's read by my kids, um, they've had no no idea of uh, all the things I've been going through.
2: Dave Gleeson was a man's man in 1988 when I first met him, both of us working at the Carlton Police Station. Dave was a really competent, confident and popular policeman who was just so funny and so entertaining. Many of us still remain in contact to this day from Carlton, even though it was way back in 1988. Carlton was my first gazetted station and I was really fortunate because I know others who went to their first stations and they didn't like it. We worked really hard at Carlton, but we also played hard. It was the days of Alphonse, Gangitano, the Carlton crew, and believe me, they kept us very busy. The Pettingles lived just around the corner, as did many other old-time crooks and career criminals. It was pretty scary, to be honest, at times. Maybe that's the wrong word. Unnerving might be a, a better description. But you were always really hyper vigilant when you had to attend anywhere near Kath's or Kath's house for so many reasons. Our main office, um, our station was on Drummond Street, but we did have a couple of branch offices across the road at Stewart's Hotel, uh, the Clyde Hotel, and oh my God, the Down Under. Oh boy, that brings back memories. They were great days. I went to Dave and his wife, Christine's wedding as did many of us at Carlton, I can still remember Dave and Chrissy's wedding song. How amazing is that? And I wouldn't embarrass Dave by telling the listeners, but looking back, oh God, it was cheesy, as many wedding songs are, including my own. Uh It came as no surprise that Dave went on to become a decorated and dedicated high-ranking detective within Victoria Police and then he joined the Australian Federal Police, the feds, to work overseas. This all formed part of 37 years in a variety of policing jurisdictions and capacity development missions in Timor-Leste, Afghanistan and Papua New Guinea, PNG. PNG exposed Dave to several Uh, traumatic incidents, as did his time in uh, Timor-Leste and uh, Afghanistan. That extremely competent, confident, funny, entertaining policeman became a shell of the man that I worked with at Carlton. He was diagnosed with PTSD in 2014 when his bucket filled and uh, where he found it hard to think of a reason to continue. However, a stay in hospital and the love of his wife, Chrissy and family made him realise that he could live again. But it hasn't been an easy path. Like so many of us, Dave has visions, he has smells, sounds which trigger him daily. But at least he's here with us to experience those visions, smells and sounds, however unpleasant and triggering they are. Had he not sought professional help, he wouldn't have been able to or be here with us to share in the joy of watching his sons mature, playing footy, settling down and becoming fathers themselves. Cause Dave is now a grandfather. And of course, he's had his wife, Chrissy, beside him every single step of the way. Dave's written a book about his experiences and his mental health decline. And it's called The Buckets Full. So many police and emergency services personnel can relate to those words. So, Dave, thanks for your time. Uh, Gee, it hasn't been a lot of roses and happy days for you, has it?
1: Uh, No, like, Narelle, I think you've covered a fair bit in the the book. And, you know, like I used to always really feel that I was um, confident and capable and as um, my career went on and... Some of the instances I talk about in my book, um, yeah, look, things really fell apart towards the end uh, for a while, And but um, at the moment I feel comfortable. You know, I still have my issues. I still have my triggers. I still have um, depressive moods, but at the moment, you know, I feel I can hold my head up and push on.
2: Yeah, it, um, it's a beast, this PTSD, but I just can't get over the amount of police that are being diagnosed with PTSD, it's it it's frightening. And so many, I'm just hearing too many, that aren't dealing with it and they're ending their lives rather than deal with those triggers and sounds and smells that we were talking about. It's just too many. And if you and I can give people hope that, yeah, you know, we've had some pretty dark days but we come back, don't we?
1: Oh well exactly and that was in the end that was the the reasoning behind the book because so many uh, instances of ptsd with police that i've um learned about that that was the end of their career so in some um instances mine's a little bit different because you know i kept going i pushed on and nine years later i'm um, after my first diagnosis i've um yeah, I've pushed through and I've managed to work and continue with my policing career on a reduced um, scope, you know, with um, I'm not allowed to carry a gun for a number of reasons, but, um, um, you know, I've still returned and I've been effective. I've affected rests in that time and, you know, I've done briefs, gone to court, uh, travelled, but, you um, know, and then you have the downward spirals for whatever reasons and, you yeah, so but I'm I'm pretty happy in s- some circumstances that you know that I've I've pushed on and I got to finish my career, not the journey that I wanted, but you know I'm I'm here and I'm talking to you today and hopefully, uh, you know if, if people listen that, that, that they can realise that you can you know you can go on and be productive uh, at a reduced level, and mm. yeah, we're here to have our chat. Mm
2: and thank goodness we are dave so dave with going back to work uh number one is i take my hat off to you i just think that is so good not just from your point of view but also you have obviously got very uh supportive and understanding uh people uh supporting you at work that seems to be such a makes such a huge difference and people that understand about mental illness
1: you know, I'm probably, this is probably a little bit detrimental to that part of the conversation. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry, but I didn't share it with a lot of the people at my work. And mm. um, yeah, so.
2: But who does, Dave? I, I don't think that's such a, I mean, yeah, I didn't share it either, but I, I don't know about you, but I didn't know what was going on and it's hard to share with somebody when you don't know what's going on yourself. Um, I think, And that's what I think this is so important, the conversation we're having today, because sometimes you don't know how sick you are, but there are signs. If we look back, would you agree that there were signs that you weren't coping? And maybe if our supervisors and people in management knew more about uh, mental illness, not just necessarily PTSD, but if they knew more about mental illness, they might uh, Recognise those signs. Do you think that might have helped?
1: Oh yeah, look, that's a hundred percent. Like I'm, I'm guilty of not reaching out. But I was just talking about when I got back to work, it was only yeah. my immediate supervisors initially that were aware that what my uh, illness was. So none of my co-workers, up until uh, the release of this book, knew that I was um, dealing with mental health issues. So I sort of I kept it a secret from. Upon my return and it was probably it was because that was what i did because i was embarrassed by it i you know i was taking medication daily and going to see a psychiatrist every three weeks but none of my work were aware of that a couple of my really close friends were but yeah. um yeah so i i kept it secret from some and i was honestly i had a really great return to work coordinator um christina what's a surname to embarrass her but christina was fantastic And, you know, I've had good treaters along the way. so. Hmm.
2: But but that's probably my point uh, is that Christina has been of great support to you. But if you had somebody that wasn't as supportive as Christina, you possibly wouldn't be able to have um, worked again. And that's why it's important that our uh, supervisors or people in management Uh, do understand about mental illness. It's just so important. But what I think is interesting, what you just said then, you said that, uh, and I think so many of us feel the same, about the shame and the embarrassment, the humiliation, and that's why we don't um, uh, share it with people. But am I assuming now that your co-workers do know and how have they responded?
1: Uh, Well, the the close ones... um that have been my, you know, like my close friends, um, they, they're aware of it. And, uh, but a lot of them will only find out once they either read the book or someone tells them about the book, but I haven't outwardly said, Oh, look, this is what happened to me. And, um, to be honest with you, Narelle, until this book's read by my kids, um, th- they've had no, no idea of, uh, all the things I've been going through. So the release of the book and the uh, wow. The yeah the the writing of it that was it was all kept secret. Um, I didn't talk about it, and because I didn't feel comfortable sharing it. But now I think I'm at a stage in my life, and that's why it's I'm here now talking to you. I guess.
2: Mm. But but also I think that's such a, a shame. But I completely get it. We don't talk about it because of that stigma. It's the stigma of mental illness and what we need to do is normalise and not stigmatise mental illness as just another illness. I just can't get over, you know, I I broke my leg uh, or broke my ankle a couple of months ago and everywhere I go, somebody will say, oh, what did you do to your ankle, you know, and it's it's just a normal conversation. But if I was showing signs of mental illness, people avoid us. Uh, they don't, they can't, I don't know, they don't want to talk about it. They don't know how to talk about it. And that's why this book, as you're saying, is so important.
1: Yeah. I cover actually that sort of scenario and I talk about that. Like, obviously I have a a pretty serious incident in um, PNG where I actually get shot at, but I don't get hit. Um, I have the the mental breakdown as a result of that and all the other things, and I actually—it's you know, hard to explain to someone. So you know, I actually wish I had been shot so I had a visible injury so I can show you. So yes. like, this is what I've got. Here's here's yes. the injury. Whereas these this PTSD injury, it's you know I, I can't put a band aid on it. I can't show it to someone. You know, it's it's it's, it's well probably the the showing is um, how I behave and act and. Mm, mm. and reduced yeah. as the person that I once was.
2: Yeah. And, you know, oh, that is really, oh, it was like somebody just put a, um, what do you call it, a, a knife in my heart when you said that even your kids don't know that uh, how bad it's been. So it's going to be, boy, Dave, that's going to be a tough, well, it's going to be tough once the book is out, mm. isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I dropped uh, one of the books around to my eldest boy on Tuesday night, so I am guess he's probably um, had a read of it. My youngest uh, son, he's had it there for a while, but I asked him not to read it because I gave it to his um, partner because I wanted to, her to read it first to give me some sort of feedback. But circumstances were that the book had become circulated, and so I had to change uh, a little bit of my strategy. And uh, The boys knew that I was in... Because I got hospitalised the second time around, and um, they knew. But I can remember, like Christine, they asked uh, Christine, um, you know, like, what's wrong with him? You know, why is he in hospital? Mm. And you know,
0: mm.
1: we were just going down the it was the melancholy <laughs> scenario. But yeah, but I never spoke to yeah. them. They knew that they knew something was wrong because I was living with the boys at that stage in. Melbourne and yeah. one of them had rang Christina up and said, look, I think you, you need to come and get him. But the next day I had got up and done a runner effectively and um, mm-hmm. went to the airport and flew overseas.
2: Mm. Just trying to escape, but I think we both or so many people listening will understand that uh, you can't escape, can you? It doesn't matter where you go. It's it's there. And unless you get, or my view is, unless you get some professional help, you can't do it on your own, or very few can.
1: And that's that's how it was with me. Like I was in denial early, you know, and I was so angry that I was reacting the way I as to something that I thought that I should have been able to cope with. And that was the the first time, that was back in 2014, and I can remember that, that I was that angry With myself on, so I went to a one of the psychologists that I had to see. This wasn't the one that I ended up following up with that was really good for me. It was the when I was trying to get into the recovery mode and get help, and they gave me a CD uh, for mindfulness. Anyway, I, I stuck it in my car and I was driving up the Hume Freeway and I was listening to the this CD and anyway, I pushed the button, opened the window and tossed it out the window because it was just, I was so pissed off. Yeah. That was, yeah, that was, that was my introduction to treatment was this CD which I ended up throwing out the window.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I understand the anger. Boy, do I. Um, i We will go into uh, your time in PNG because uh, I was talking to my sister the other day and I was telling her about you and how we'd made contact and she said, "It makes her angry that uh, we've got our police members going overseas for what's meant to be a peace make, uh, making. Um, what do you call it? A peace uh, making mission or peacekeeping? Past, that's peacekeeping it.
1: Peacekeeping and capacity development.
2: Yeah, and you come back, you know, having experienced or been exposed to so many." It, you know, traumatic incidents. It, it So that's why I, I do want to go into um, why we go over there and why this happens. But just before we do, I just wanted to just go back to Carlton for a minute. Um, as I said, we played hard, uh, but gee, we worked hard. Um, what are some of... The memories that stick in your mind um, from Carlton, because those days Carlton was like the oh, the centre of crime, wasn't it? Like with Alphonse and the Pettingals, boy, it was full on.
1: Um, yeah, well, I'm a, a bit like you. That was when I first went to, to Carlton. It was my first um, uh, gazetted station. Although I'd done, I think. After the uh, training, the, the sets I think it was back in the day, I did uh, eight months at the City Watch House. And if you want to talk about being introduced to the criminals of um, Victoria, eight months at the City Watch House was oh, – yeah. And uh, yeah. So there's stories. like I don't even really talk about that in the, the book much, but the stuff that went on in that um, – the old City Watch House was just um, amazing and it was in some ways it was uh, defining of me as a police person because you had to have that ability to communicate with them and you had to have that that cunning as well to try and outdo them. So yeah when I arrived at Carlton I just remember that it was my first time being the, the senior man on the van and like you said those days were was a, like I think back now the memories are so fond of my time at Carlton because we did we were so social I can remember going out like on a, a like midweek Tuesday or Wednesday night after the you catch up with the night shift crew and there would be anywhere between 15 and 20 of us going to watch a band or having a beer and you know, I remember the, <laughs> the, the, the the netball team were you part of the netball team
2: Oh, I certainly was. Excuse oh, me, I was I, goal attacked. I can't believe you you didn't remember that.
1: Well, I remember <laughs> you being at the social tournament when we used go to the Clyde and that, but I couldn't even actually remember if you played Norrell, so oh, I apologize for that. That might be
2: Oh my memory. yes, I was the I was I yeah. was the main member of the team. The team would have fallen down without me.
1: I'm sure you would have, <laughs> but but that's sort of, <laughs> Yeah, so they were my, my memory and I And you also didn't touch on but UV Street was going um crazy back then with all oh, the cars coming Oh, I forgot about
2: – yes. Well, I was
1: working the night when um, the, the – I think it was Pinky uh, McGrag and um, I can't remember who he was working with. They got a Molotov cocktail tossed on the top of their police car in Ligon Street. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like mm-hmm. there was some serious stuff going on with uh, the old Bouverie Street as well, as apart from all the, the other activity with the flats and um, – yeah, oh, the high rise.
2: Boovery Street. We were at our wits end, but, but that was a Sunday night, wasn't it? Boovery Street was uh, big Friday, on a Sunday night. Friday
1: night and Sunday night. Yep.
2: Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the uh, when the lion escaped from the zoo? Were you there at that time?
1: I've got the pictures of when the lion escaped from the zoo. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs>
2: about because what I've got in the back of my mind is JC uh, uh, yeah we all had names but JC uh, he went there and he got the divan bogged or something am I is that the same incident
1: no I'm talking about when the no the lion uh, the guy hopped in the lion cage and wanted to fight the lion and he got um, yes, he got yes. got chewed, chewed to pieces by the lion. And we had to go down in the, the, with the van the next morning because had to separate the lion from the, the deceased, deceased body.
2: Oh, my God, Dave, yes. Oh, yes. The, I do apologise to JC. Yep. Uh, I think he did go down to the zoo at one stage there. It had been raining and he was told uh, not to go down there or something, but he did and he got bogged and, oh, he got into all sorts of trouble. But, oh, yes, the lion that ate the man. Yeah. Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah, oh, so.
2: yes. But that, that man that man had a, a few issues. Well, yeah, he had a few issues, I remember. Oh, I think
1: mm. he had a few issues, Narelle, if you're getting into a cage in your karate <laughs> outfit and wanting to take on the, his black belt didn't do much for him that day, let's say. Oh, no.
2: Um, oh, gee, you've just reminded me. God, Boobery Street and the Lion. Um, so what was it? Um, oh, tell us a bit, sorry, before we go on, tell us a bit about your Vic Pol career because you became a detective senior sergeant. So is there some jobs that you remember that um, you were particularly proud of or that you've never been able to forget?
1: Uh, this, well, there's certainly jobs that – so I left Carlton and went to um, Fairfield and look, yep, some of the things that like it. a lot of people don't understand now is that like I wasn't – the academic that come through, um, you know, like school, like as in the 70s you left school when you were 16 got an apprenticeship and that's, that's what I did. Yes. So, yeah, I joined the police as a young 21, 22-year-old and then the Carlton Fairfield CI and you talk about work hard and play hard. I think old Fairfield CIB was um, infamous. Yes.
2: Selling a little or a lot?
1: great jobs there and some you know, significant arrests. I can I remember there was one time the great um, Danny Flannery and I had, had to drive out going uh, no, no lights but s- no siren know, a, a little Corolla to um, <laughs> we headed out to follow a pursuit that was going out to Hurstbridge to uh, capture a, um, an escapee from Pentridge who had done some agbergs in our area. And, and yeah, I remember that day it was a long drive from Fairfield to Hearst Bridge with no lights and sirens. But, uh, yeah, we got there we got the arrest and next day we were front page of the paper. So, yeah, that's yeah. one that I remember. And probably one of the more significant arrests that I was involved in is there was – it got a, a fair bit of publicity time when I was doing the date rate, um, uh, the – Date drug rapes in Paran and all that. So I you – know, Oh, yeah, at the yeah, nightclubs. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I caught uh, – I ended up charging uh, one of the guys that um, was responsible for that. But uh, when it uh, went to court, he played on one of them. But the main one was a victim who was a ballerina and she'd um, uh, been uh, raped. My statement of first complaint was in England because when the um, – incident happened she rang her friend who was over in England and in the end which is sadly she because it took so long to get to trial and all that she'd traveled overseas and the um trauma of uh, coming back and being involved in the the process was too much for her and um the charges were not Aww. progressed with so you know that sticks in my mind as one yeah. of it because it was a really good job and ironically yeah. yeah back in the days we did a photo board on um Twelve pairs of boxer shorts. Because it was significant in the, the ID of who the offender was at one point.
2: So,
1: yes, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we did a photo board for boxer shorts.
2: hmm And did she pick them?
1: She did, actually. She did. Really? Yeah. 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 Isn't
2: that isn't that so good when you go you're really going outside the the normal thinking, well, yeah, maybe to the uh, to the public, but to us as detectives, if she can identify a pair of boxer shorts and they're so um, identifiable to the offender, I mean, it's isn't it a great feeling when you just want to jump up in the air? And of course, you can't. But when they pick something like that with a a photo ID, you know, whether no, no matter what it is, God, it's the best feeling. Oh. Oh, some of that stuff I miss, Dave. Do you?
1: Um, yes, I, I certainly do.
2: Oh, no, well, you did it for a long time after that.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, I cover off on a couple of the significant events in the, in, uh, in the book and some of those are the things that become issues for me later in life, which I thought at the time I'd dealt with, but, um, yeah, they were just chipping away in the background and I get exposed. They have some exposures later on and. Yeah, yeah. Oh.
2: and and so, Dave, what was it that attracted you? So you you work at uh, Fairfield, you do all this great work. What is it that attracted you to going to the AFP?
1: Well, after I actually, I get promoted and go to Brunswick, and again, Brunswick was crazy for a, a sergeant there at the time because you know we're we'll turning over night shifts every three or four weeks and. Personal circumstances after a few years where I moved to Uroa and then um, went up to uh, the Gonella as a, at that point, as the acting detective sergeant because filled on um, some famous shoes up there and Dennis Tanner replaced Dennis.
2: Oh, yes, yeah.
1: Yes. And then. um,
2: (laughs) Feel free if you want to expand on that. I I think I'll I'll leave it alone. Yeah, I'll leave it alone too because.
1: (laughs) um, yeah. At Benalla yeah. at the time, you were either pro dentist or not pro dentist. So it was and yes. I yeah. didn't. I really I didn't think have it's... enough knowledge to make any opinion. But anyway, but yeah. I was in his position, yeah. so that was different.
2: Okay, right. Yep.
1: <laughs> then, um, yeah, I, there was um, some personal circumstances which it's not my story to tell. But anyway, I was made up my mind. I was going to go back and um, live in Melbourne. So. Took up a position at the um, airport, which was a AFP. They were VicPol members working for the AFP after the yep. wheel review. So I worked there for about eighteen months. So that's where I got exposed to the AFP way, and yeah, you know, uh, yeah, you know, I enjoyed my time at the airport. Then I, um, I actually applied for a team leader's position within the AFP, and it. Which is ironic because I was the acting superintendent at the airport, but I couldn't get a um, I couldn't get a sergeant's position. So yeah, I applied and got uh, a senior sergeant's position, and then um, went to um, Benalla as a senior sergeant. And um, yeah, this few things happened, and in the end, I was just to be honest, I was just um, probably they were the warning signs at the, about this time. I was uh, I was you know, getting angry and frustrated with the public, and I virtually had a, had a belly full of working with the public. So out of the blue, I got the phone call from um, AFP recruitment, and they said, oh, were you interested in coming over to do some international deployment? And I initially said no, but um, I cover off again the book. I had this triple fatal on the highway where I had to go out, and that was probably – um yeah, the end of wanting to do that sort of um, policing. Yeah,
2: yeah. And,
1: yeah, and then yeah. Um, so uh, about two days later, I think it was, I rang the guy that had rang back and said, oh, yeah, send me out a letter of offer. And within four weeks later, I resigned, left Vic Polen and started at the AFP.
2: Hmm. And Because I, I always remember quite a few of my colleagues went to the AFP, but... The reason they went to the AFP was because the AFPs um, they paid so much better than the police, so much better.
1: When I do remember, do when I crossed that? over, yeah. yes, that that's correct. But at the moment, I think yeah. you'll find that it's the tides turned a little bit, and unfortunately, there's the AFP are uh, down the bottom of the the tree at the moment.
2: Oh, okay. What was it that attracted you to working overseas? Well, just to, was it to try and get away from things or
1: No, this, ugh, obviously uh I felt I'd done as much as I th- needed to do in Vicpol, like I was like again I wasn't the uh, academic and to progress past senior sergeant you need to go back and do your studying and and I've always that I was uh, that policeman that um learnt through doing. Yes. And, yeah, so, yeah. you know, like, so that's that was my way of um, keeping my, my police career going. So, I'd, you know, I learned by doing. And then, um, yeah, I think the opportunity to go and work overseas, I was a little bit naive to it, to be honest, because um, mm-hmm. there's different. There's, I think
2: most of us are, to be honest. I yeah. don't think anybody, many of us have got any idea.
1: Yeah, so I, and then. Through the research I had to do to uh, work out what um, I wanted to do, I, I understood there was cap- capacity development and there is also peacekeeping missions. So, you know, I just felt my skills and um, yeah, my way of life were suited to that policing. So, yeah, I took the opportunity, and ja- in some ways, yeah. I-
2: Can you tell me? Oh, sorry, Dave. I was just going to ask that. I understand the peacekeeping side of things well to a point, but what is the capacity? What's that called?
1: Capacity development. What's that about? Well, that's where you're going in, and you're trying to make the the police that are working in that particular country basically better, building their skills. Okay,
2: so you're training training them effectively. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Okay,
2: righto, righto, yeah. Okay, so you decide to go with the peacekeeping side of things, or the Uh, uh, the capacity development.
1: You get. well, ironically, after all this, after leaving um, Vic Polk's, so I didn't want to do general G- – I you know, had enough of the public. My first um, posting in the end was with um, Northern Territory Police in the um, – so I went and worked at a place called Hearth's Bluff for um, about seven months, I think so, which is um, a, a community uh, about three and a half hours west of Alice Springs. So I was back doing GD's policing initially. It was part of the um, Government of the Day's um, reaction to the uh, child abuse and um, domestic violence within the uh, Northern Territory.
2: And was that your role? Uh, Like, was that about witnessing and being exposed to a lot of child abuse and domestic and family violence?
1: Um, At Hearts Bluff, most of the... um, activities or investigative sites. It's basically a general duty police station, but you're three and a half hours. There was two AFP and one NT guy in our um, okay. mission. So you're doing um, general policing work, but I'd say 80% of our work back then was uh, domestic violence and alcohol-related violence.
2: How did that affect you?
1: Well, I think – I was probably a little bit more experienced than the other guys and had seen it all before. Like it wasn't – its as sad as it sounds, it wasn't new to me, you know. And, and fortunately, as a police officer at different areas you work in, you, the, the amount of domestic violence incidents you have to attend, you know, are significant. So that wasn't – like I had a great time in Hearts buff. I was really you know, peeved when I was told I was going to my first mission after – leaving Big Pole was to be in another police force, but um, I was so grateful for that experience. Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah, I bet you were. It just just, uh, shows another side of life that we're not exposed to, certainly not down in Victoria. Well, I suppose there are pockets uh, where um, you would have been exposed to something similar, but it's just so far away from everything, isn't it? it it's up to you and your two colleagues. That that's
1: it. Yeah, and you Most of the time, you you know, you're getting woken up at like one and two o'clock in the morning by someone throwing a rock on the roof of the police complex to get your attention, and you'd have to go out and deal with it. Yeah, khaki overalls.
2: And then. From there you go, when do you actually go to PNG?
1: PNG was the last mission. Um, so I, okay. I went to, yep. after uh, Hearts Bluff, I went to Timor for 12 months. And
0: tell
2: was, us a bit about that because nobody, I don't think, unless you've been there in the capacity you did, nobody really understands about all that. So can you tell us,
1: um, Yeah, well,
2: explain it a bit?
1: Timor, when we were in Timor, uh, it was a UN mission, so we were actually the police there, so we worked alongside the local police. And when I first went over, I was assigned to a place called Bacau, which is probably about two hours, two and a half hours' drive from Dili. And uh, Bacau was greatly influenced by the Portuguese because they'd um, occupied um, the area, but it's an extremely poor country. And due to all the violence and the invasions of the Indonesians and the um, civil unrest, majority of the um, population was, I think it was like 60% were under 30 years of age. Like it was a very, very young country because all the um, older adults had been um, had lost their lives in one way or another. And again, it was like I had some shocking uh, incidents, but – Again, I thought I was coping all right in um, Timor and, but again, did some great jobs, did a, a human trafficking um, job there with an old friend of yours and mine and Digger's and uh, Digger Dorman.
2: Oh, so you did it with Digger?
1: Yeah, well, initially I was up in Macau. I did six months up in Bikau. Then I come down into Homicide. Yeah. And so I was working Homicide for uh, – I was in uh, – In the end, I did about five months, but I had an incident with the um, coroner, uh, a lady from Cuba, and I wasn't all that satisfied with her findings, but her undertakings in um, an autopsy, and she complained um, about the Australian guy at the autopsy, and in the end, I was um, given the option to go to another area, and I took up a position with Digger in Narcotics, So we were doing the – there was me, Digger, and two, a PNTL, Timorese Police.
2: And, you know, just for the listeners, and I hope you don't mind me saying, Dave, but um, Digger was one of the the most charismatic – oh, God, he was a – oh, God, he was a great man. And uh, life obviously uh, got to – well – I don't think we really know what happened to Digger, but he passed away. But obviously, a very troubled, a very troubled man. And did you see any troubles with Digger when you were working with him? Because we all used to work at Carlton together. I don't know if yeah. I just said that, but yeah, yeah. well,
1: um, like Digger and I, obviously, we started the same day with the AFP, and. Okay. Yeah, so like and I'd had that exposure obviously working with Digger and I've been to – he went to his first wedding and come to our wedding and Digger and I were very good friends and I talk about Digger. I actually devote a whole chapter to Digger in the the book because –
2: He deserves a whole book.
1: (laughs) Well, he's the only guy I know that – You could write a whole
2: book about him, couldn't you? Yeah.
1: He's the only guy I know that had two funerals, so – He's the old digger, <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's another story. I don't cover in that in the book, but he, he had two funerals. Okay. Old digger, Yep. So, but his decline. Would you,
2: would you mind? Would you mind just how can tell us about two funerals if you can?
1: Okay. Well, he had the public funeral for all the police members to attend, which was held oh, at yeah. the inn yeah. up in Essendon. And the next day, we had another private funeral for him down at the burial site at uh, Danny Rye or Dramana. Yeah, so, oh,
2: okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah.
1: But, um, myself and Dave Burt was thought with Digger, as you do, you know, that he'd be the only person ever to have two funerals. And he, he would love that. <laughs> you're all... He would love that.
2: He would. He would. And you're going to – sorry, you're going to tell us a story about Digger? No, I was
1: just going to say that, you know, like I, I – have a whole chapter and I've actually included my um, the statement I did for the coroner for his inquest because I think it's a good yeah. read and how um, troubled Digger was in the end and um, he certainly had serious issues that um, we never, ever, no one ever, ever got on top of and what happened to him when he passed, I'm not 100% sure but um, it's just sad that he's declined from the guy that we knew in the mid-80s to that oh, he's yeah. passing, there was a completely different person. Like he was still um, charismatic and all that, and it uh, actually I used to, i didn't joke with him. I used to tell him, so you're a bloody narcissist, digger," and that's how he became in the end. <laughs> but he, um, yeah. yeah, I, oh, I, he,
0: I miss hey, him. Hey Dave, he was, he
2: was oh, you would. he, he was—he'd be close to the most charismatic man. I ever met in policing Mm. oh god he was a he was a great bloke just so sad isn't it and again it's what we are exposed to and particularly what you're exposed to over there uh, it would have um, exacerbated diggers you know difficulties which again he obviously kept to himself like so many of us do
1: yeah like and I know, well, you obviously know Digger as well. And again, I I, I speak of it, but Digger was the sort of guy he never really complained to me. Like, and I was as close to him as anyone in the last five years of his life. He never ever complained to me about the work that he did never you know that was never what the, his complaint was his complaint all had become about management and things and that but I think under under underneath it's definitely the things that he was exposed to the work that he had that had had a significant impact on his um, mental health and in the end it was his physical health that declined as a result of his mental health
2: and I've got to say digger he'd love me to say this but he had, I do apologise to the listeners. This is probably being a bit um, self-indulgent, but he had one of the best bodies ever. Digger was built like. He had really big, wide shoulders. He kept himself really, really well, didn't he?
1: And again, I...
2: (laughs) Not saying you didn't, Dave. No, I know that, but I'm
1: just saying. But (laughs) but The the decline from the Carlton Digger to the uh, Digger at the end is is, um, significant and... It's very wow. distressing okay. when you think of it in the end.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, Dave, you said then about the jobs that he was doing. Tell us about the jobs that you did in PNG. Like you said there was if, – if you can, and, again, I'm – you know, if you don't want to go there, please no, don't. No. But we don't – people that have never been to PNG, they just don't – me included, I just don't get it. Are we talking about PNG understand-
1: or the team or jobs in the end?
2: I'm sorry, Timor. Yeah. Sorry, I keep going. I don't know why I keep going back to PNG. Yeah, Timor, tell us more about that. Next week, Dave shares with us, amongst other things, an amazing investigation he conducted with his great mate, Digger Dorman, where they discovered a human trafficking syndicate and how they were able to identify 27 Chinese women who'd. Been basically tricked into coming to Timor on false pretenses, ending up working in brothels and not in hospitality or waitressing as they'd been promised. Dave's written a book, The Bucket's Full, uh, which details his experiences as a policeman having served in three different jurisdictions. So he certainly got the runs on the board of vast experience. And those words, The Bucket's Full, a word so many police and emergency services personnel can relate to. I received the book from Dave yesterday and, oh God, it's an incredibly powerful read. Dave doesn't hold back with incidents which obviously contributed to his mental health decline. One particular incident I read about where Dave nearly lost his life had me just shaking my head in disbelief at the inadequate, well, actually unbelievably inept support that Dave didn't receive. Maybe, just maybe, if Dave had received the appropriate uh, care at that incident or after that incident, things may, may, may have been a little bit different or maybe a lot different, but we'll never know. It's hard not to wonder if sending AFP members overseas to help police forces in other countries combat crime is worth the damage it does to members of our peacekeeping and capacity development programs. It's too many, in my view, come back damaged beyond repair. Anyway, we'll talk to you next week. Have a great week. As you've probably noticed... We've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression. I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks.